This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. what we should talk about though should we talk about your trip we could talk about my trip talk about your trip we could talk about my trip you're going on a trip i am going on a trip not right now but soon. eventually but pretty soon actually pretty soon you leave on friday where are you going I'm going to why i'm going to amsterdam uh for my honeymoon mm-hmm and astute listeners of the show will realize that it's a year late from my wedding. Mm-hmm. Uh, welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And I got married a year ago. And Craig got married a year ago, and then they were going to go on a, honey- on a honeymoon the summer yeah, following. Like th- two or three months later, yeah. And then a week or so before they were supposed to leave... For no reason that anybody can figure out. Truth. <laughs> his wife, Laura's foot it broke. Just gave up. Like, a- And she says, like, so she's, she, <laughs> sa- she has said to me that she's upset about it because there's not even a good story. She just was walking and then she wasn't. That's true. That is very true. And so that ruined their honeymoon and also their summer. Yeah. It, it, oof, that went into our fall. It was like a whole scene. Um, mm. But now she's healthy and we had uh, a certain amount of time in which to use the airfare, so uh, we're going. So off you go. So off we go, uh, which is very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, she has Dutch heritage, so we're exciting. We're excited to be there for to explore that a little bit. It's always great to celebrate your specific kind of whiteness. Yeah, a little you bit. know, there's there's only it's, it's there's only so many opportunities we will ever get to do that. Right, yeah. Um, and it's also part, like, because of that uh, specific migration of people, that's all, like, her alma mater is, like, super, it's in Holland, Michigan, so, like, it's woven into mm-hmm. her, like, alma mater, co- like, I wonder if they have stuff. anything to do with each other. <laughs> Shut up. I wonder if there's any connection there. Weird. Um. So, yeah, so that's what we're going to do, which also means that for next week, Andrew, well, first we should say that we're reading the, we, I read The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. We're going to talk about that in a little bit once I'm done talking about me. Yeah. Um. But that means that we're going to have a special guest next week, which we have yet to tease online. Mm-hmm. We haven't toesed it. What's the past tense of tease? Is it toes? I think it's teased. I think I already no, I'm said sure teased. No, I'm pretty sure it's toes. Uh, we, <laughs> we haven't toesed it up until now, but now we are teasing it. Yeah. What is? Who's going to talk to you next week? It's not going to be me. No, it's not going to be Craig. The person who's going to talk to me next week is my wife, <laughs> Susanna Rosenberg, who was on the show with Laura pre-injury a, a while I think. ago talking yeah. about uh, talking about eat pray love yeah but yeah no i'm gonna talk Suzanne and i are gonna make this make tie the we're already married we're not gonna tie any <laughs> knots we're just gonna like tie our podcasting <laughs> knot i guess 
And there were a lot of positive responses to that episode. So if you uh, have joined us <laughs> recently... Enough that you're making her a little nervous. So, like, maybe... Well, I'm just saying... Uh, and Laura's going to do one uh, with me when you guys take a vacation later this year. So if if you I'm sure have... we will talk about it for four minutes in a month and a half yeah, or so. If you have... Uh, not listen to that episode because you joined us recently go back and listen to the e pray love episode it's a book that you should know about so why not hear about it from two cool people that andrew and i know and are married to um <laughs> let's let's talk i didn't want to define them as wives that felt inappropriate um, no i didn't want to just, i was just saying i wanted to get that sweet boy yeah. thing in because like i doubt that she's gonna let me do it on the episode that we do yeah that's true so i wanted to get it in here that's really true so let's talk about the bell jar. I read the bell jar. Uh, yes. I have not read. Any, I didn't mean We're to say that so like far. a question. Um, I have not read any of Miss Plath's poetry. I We've only, never done poetry for the show because I don't know how it would go. It would be I really tough. Don't. I don't it would think be really it would be tough. Great. We would need to like both read it probably and it would need to be a, like someone with a really big literary background that we could like riff on yeah and also we need to know like anything about poetry i'm not saying we're experts about regular words but we at least <laughs> have established a certain like expectation level among our listeners if we try to do poetry it would be it would be a bad time um but yeah sylvia plath she was uh born in 1932 died in 1963 um, she was an American poet uh, and novelist and short story writer. So she doesn't have a lot of published books to her name. She's got The Bell Jar, which is her only like novel. Mm -hmm. She's got uh, Colossus, which is her first book of poetry. And then she's got a, a book called uh, Ariel that was published posthumously after her death from uh suicide in, in 1930 1963 yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and that that was the book that actually like it was the so the subject matter of ariel is in large part like about her battle with depression which she'd you know she'd she fought with i guess how do you she struggled with it there yeah, you go she sure. struggled with depression for her entire adult life and um spoiler that's what the bell jar is about too but yes yeah Ariel right also. So, so the yeah the so when the bell jar was published which it was published in 63 in the uk and then in uh, 71 in the u.s um uh, its original publication like it didn't really get much of a response but after um ariel was published um because of her then recent suicide people looked at the subject matters of the poems and they looked at it through the lens of her recent suicide and that's when her literary profile starts to rise and then in 71 when the bell jar is published over the objections of her mother in the u.s like i think i think that's when people were like ready to people had already yeah embrace her you know the edition that i read i read the kind of like it's almost the mass market paperback it's like the harper perennial classic edition that i read it has a foreword from francis mccullough who's done uh, who was at Harper when they ended up publishing The Bell Jar. And she recalls people being really cautious on the book because she was such a young writer and they thought it sounded kind of young, um, yeah. which I think is actually, I would I would now agree is, uh, with some scholars that it's actually an asset of the book. Um, 
because she's not looking back on a very long time period ago. Anyway, um, people were not super enthused to publish it. And then in 70, 69, 70, someone at Random House was going to exploit some American copyright law to publish it uh, anyway. Because mm-hmm. apparently if you publish something overseas and then you don't publish it in America within six months, this law has since been like done away with. But at the time, then anybody could publish it in America. And I'm sure whatever existing copyright law is at least as dumb and nonsensical. Yes. But <laughs> that's true. Uh, so... Uh, McCullough was able to convince the guy at Random House not to do that and then ran right to Platt's family and her widow, Ted Hughes, a widower, Ted Hughes. Uh, We're going to talk about him. Yeah, we are going to talk about him um, and said, look, this guy very almost published this like we should probably publish this. Um, and they did. And as you said, yeah, folks had been reading her poetry by then for a while. Ariel was well known. And as McCullough points out, there was a burgeoning interest uh, even in fiction in depictions of mental illness um, and struggles with depression and uh, even suicide. And, and so folks were like, there was already a place for work like this uh, and an appetite for it in a way that kind of tapped into folks who were already into Plath and so on and so forth. So, mm-hmm. so uh, let, let me back it up a little bit and talk about her childhood and yeah, her please. Um, her time in college uh she had, like i said she was born in 1932 um she published her first poem at uh, age eight in uh the boston herald's children's section Woo. so there you go um her dad died mm-hmm. of diabetes when she was eight and so in 1940 um he had like he had had a friend who had died of lung cancer. And so he like compared his symptoms to those of his friend and assumed that he also had lung cancer, which led to him not getting his diabetes treated, which led in part to like his foot being amputated and then him passing away. And and yeah. So that was like, not great. Like don't diagnose yourself. No, anybody, please don't do that. I don't care if it's your friend. I don't care if it's WebMD. Like, just go to go see a, a go see a doctor. When they a say, real doctor. yeah, go get a second opinion if you don't like the first doctor, but don't have that second opinion not be a doctor. Yeah, and like, not some goop doctor that you read about on the Gwyneth Paltrow site. Just a real doctor. Okay. <laughs> yes. <Continue. laughs> not a goop doctor. Uh, yes, I know about goop doctors. Do you remember that comic book, Batman versus the Goop Doctors? <laughs> <laughs> just a little a little levity because sylvia platt's story is is not long and it is, it is very sad um so she goes to smith college mm-hmm. in uh, 1950 um she has a pretty good time there she's uh editing the paper there she gets a guest editorship at uh, mademoiselle magazine yep mm-hmm. um the summer of what would have been her junior year um she had kind of a bad experience there and there was a there was an episode where she didn't get to meet a poet, uh, Dylan Thomas, who she really looked up to, um, and it kind of sent her into a spiral where she like waited around for a couple days to meet him and couldn't, and then like ended up cutting her legs to like see if she had the stomach to commit suicide, and then she attempts suicide in 1953 um, by by like crawling under her mother's house and taking sleeping pills. Now she. 
um, was not found, but she did like come to three days after that and then spent uh, six months in therapy. She got um, electroshock or electroconvulsive therapy is yep. the specific kind, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which we've I think we've talked about a few times on the show. And it's still apparently like very sporadically and rarely practiced as like a short term treatment for some kinds of depression yeah we in recently cases where in cases where medications like aren't working or, or can't be taken for whatever reason we recently talked about it uh on the invisible man podcast uh um, right yeah and similarly had some readers agree with me that it, that's a kind of a really disorienting passage uh probably purposely so but very hard to follow uh and this book uh actually has two instances of ect one that goes really terribly um and is really traumatic and then one that even though you might look at it and go i don't know if we should do ect objectively outside of the fiction um it is less like overtly harmful let's call it yeah Um, i mean it's like it's not practiced very often i didn't go looking for modern statistics i know that in the uk as of 2002 there were like 12,000 documented like uses of it sure um which, it's still which around is not it's, it's not around. like a, a lot but it's still around and like in the in the u.s i know it's not like required learning for anybody who's going into any like medical profession okay and, yeah um like regulation of it i think has been left to the states so it's it's not like a national issue it's not a thing that like comes up a whole lot no i think people would rather try something else um so but she does you know she she spends six months in treatment and that does she does have a pretty good recovery from that she um this was that mclean house right did you do you find that sorry this is at mclean house which is where i didn't know i didn't take a lot of notes on like the i know there are specific doctors who treated her and she was at a specific place but i didn't um take a lot of notes on the specifics specifics of the treatment i only mentioned mclean hospital because uh other f- famous or or notable folks have been there included James Taylor, John Nash, mathematician, uh Anne Sexton and David Foster Wallace uh among others. Boy. So it's in Belmont, Massachusetts and it that's it is well regarded um but it is certainly Sure, yeah. Yeah. Um and she some of the experiences that she writes about in The Bell Jar uh she actually drew on from a book called The Snake Pit by Mary Jane Ward. Um, so like not all of the experiences that she describes in the bell jar when, when the main character gets to, um, a hospital, uh, like McLean is, it's not the same. Um, cause it sounds like McLean was actually okay as far as yeah. those things go. Sorry, go ahead. Um, so she has a, she recovers, she goes back to Smith. She graduates in 1955 with honors. Um, and then she's at a, she's at, Cambridge she's there um, on a Fulbright yeah yeah and a government grant and um she had read his she had read the poetry of this guy Ted Hughes and uh she was she said this is a quote from her I was very impressed and I wanted to meet him I went to this little celebration and that's actually where we met then we saw a great deal of each other Ted came back to Cambridge and suddenly suddenly we found ourselves getting married a few months later we kept writing poems to each other then it just grew out of that I guess a feeling that we were both writing uh, so much and having such a fine time doing it we decided that this should keep on mm-hmm. um so they got married in 1956 um she had her first child in 1960 had a miscarriage 
in uh, 61, which was the subject of a few of her poems. Mm-hmm. Um, and she had another child later. Now, her children are both like the, her suicides, high profile kind of lent them interest. So they yeah, are they yeah. are actually acclaimed in their own right. Her daughter, um, uh, Frida Hughes, is an artist and a poet also like she's she's written and published a few children's books she's put on a lot of a lot of uh, art exhibitions and then her son nicholas who died in 2009 um was a uh, fish biologist Ooh. which is a cool specific kind of biology <laughs> okay. i guess gotta learn about them scales yeah not like the music kinds get it <laughs> gotta go to school to study those schools mm-hmm. my god get it like schools of fish yeah I'm trying to come up with a gill pun, but I can't. No, that's just, it's, it's, it, I'm trying to come up with a fin pun, but I can't do that. <laughs> just like know that those words are out there and they're fish related. Uh, now, in uh, 61, um, Plath and Hughes rent out uh, their flat to this couple. And uh, the woman, um, I'm not sure how to pronounce her name, A S S I A, like Ashia. Sure. Or like I don't that. know. Um, Ted has an affair with her. Yeah. Which, cool job, Ted. Good job, um, Ted. Sylvia discovers this in July of 1962, and they separate in September. Um, she had, previous to this, she had, she had attempted suicide by crashing her car in June of 1962, so she's still wrestling with depression, and I can only assume that her domestic troubles made it worse yeah i I can't imagine any situation in which the opposite would be true yep um so she's you know she's writing she's pretty productive she's writing a lot of poetry um but her symptoms are getting worse throughout 1962 and then in um, january of 63 she's talking to her doctor about her depression he gives her some medication he um, recommends that she go to a hospital. Um, he has somebody come to check in on her every day. And at um, at 9 a.m. on February 11th, which people have noted is probably before the antidepressants that she was given would have been able to to take effect. Mm-hmm. Cause they take they typically take like three or four weeks to, to really get in there. Um, a nurse who was coming to check on her found her dead of uh, carbon monoxide poisoning after she had stuck her head in the oven and she had very carefully stuck like wet towels and stuff around the doors to keep the gas from, from doing anything to her kids who are sleeping in the same house. Yeah. And there was initial, like what happened? There was like, it took, you know, just a little bit of time for folks to be like, was this exactly a suicide? And I, I, the verdict was, resoundly yes um, i think there are some people there was who, due diligence who, going on certainly yeah like there there are some people who say she didn't intend to but then there are others who say you know she stuck her head pretty far back in this oven and and prepared the kitchen so that the kids wouldn't get hurt like it seems yeah. pretty intentional and, and unfortunately there's a you know there's a history and there's you know prior yeah yeah, yeah yeah um and um, hughes inherited the estate because they were yeah, so still here's married. where we start getting yeah. like aside from him because because um asha or however you pronounce her name she committed suicide in 1969 and so you've got 
these people sort of accusing him of abusing both of them and like bringing their suicides about in some way. Now I have no idea if that's founded on anything or not. Mm-hmm. I don't um, know. Like I, I don't, I don't profess to like know anything that anybody else knows that um, nobody else doesn't know. Whatever. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, I No, I don't know. Get it. I, sh- <laughs> um, and then like on top of that, you've got, like her, because they're still legally married yep. when she dies, all of her stuff goes to him. Mm-hmm. And that includes um, journals and a second novel that she didn't mm-hmm. finish and publish. Mm-hmm. Um, so at some point, this novel just gets lost, like around 1970, like it just disappears. It's not around anymore. And he did burn he, a journal, yeah. He burns her last journal because he didn't want their kids to read it. Sure. Which I get on a personal level. But Even both, if it really sucks on a literary level. Yeah, you are both like professional literatists. Like you get it. I yeah, don't. Though, I mean, at that at that time, like right after she had she had I died, guess. like yeah. Who? No, I, I, I mean I don't want to cut him a lot have, of slack, he, but let's no, cut no, him no, that no, slack. I'm, I'm I guess. just saying, like who has who has the wear any idea who's gonna be famous and whose work is gonna be of interest and who isn't? But like. So he's drawn a lot of fire for that. Her tombstone says Sylvia Plath Hughes on it. People have been trying for a long, long time to get into that cemetery and chisel his name off of the tombstone because he had kind of dicked her around before she before she committed suicide. Yep. And and he always, you know, very assiduously had it removed and repaired and replaced and hmm. and he didn't really He published letters that, in the eighties, right? Um, he published a book of poetry in um oh, 1998 right. called uh, Birthday Letters. Now he now he it should be mentioned is a famous poet in his own right. He was a poet laureate from uh, 1984 until he died in 1998. Um, he his his work was very famous on its own merits. Merits, sure, okay. Um, and I'm I'm sure like just like her kid's profile was was boosted by relation to her like i'm sure his was too but it's it's not like he's just writing her coattails or whatever he he publishes this book called birthday letters in 1998 it's his poetry about her and them and like trying to make sense of her depression and her suicide and it's really the first time he had really commented like extensively publicly about it yeah okay because i think he felt like People didn't really like people who were asking him about them were not doing it in good faith. Like they were coming to it assuming that he was a bad guy. And again, maybe he was. I don't know. I have like I'm not a Platt scholar. Um, but I mean, people... affairs are bad, so there's that. Oh yeah, no, no. I'm not saying he's not a wiener because it <laughs> seems like he's a he's a major a big old wiener, a big league wiener. <laughs> A a dead big league wiener, um, big league wiener. Listen to you, <laughs> <laughs> trying to keep the show clean, you know. <laughs> but yeah, that book sold very well, and and um, he was when the book was published, he was he was suffering from he had terminal cancer, and he died shortly after. Um. And then their their daughter Frida spoke publicly about both of them for the first time, like in 2015. So this story continues to 
unfold in a sure. lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But like the, I guess the short version of it is just she wrestled with depression for a long time and she lost, and it's really tragic because it seems like that that tension between like her and her you know mental well-being produced a lot of really significant literature yeah and it's maybe significant because of how close it gets to depression and and suicidal thoughts and that kind of stuff but yeah like she she burned her like she burned out like she's yeah there's a um there's a british playwright named sarah kane who we will never read for the podcast i don't think because the plays are not you can't just talk about them as scripts but one of her most famous she is notable like notable now because she died young and took her own life um and one of her plays is like almost formless but about you know really being inside of her head as it's kind of as she's kind of losing grasp on things um and that is a play that i think like not as many people would have heard about, unfortunately, had not that, you know, the situation been, you know, had the situation been different and just like a person put that play out, um, people would not have written articles about it and then gotten name, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, it, that that untimely death of, of artists is an unfortunate thing that, that creates a reason to go experience a piece of art. That's what we're saying. Yeah, and it's it's like because usually that that usually in a way whatever uh, when it's something like this like it does as you just said like it impacts the art in a way that like makes it burn brighter. Um, yeah, I mean, there's the 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 quote we get from Neil Young by way of Kurt Cobain about it being better to burn out than fade away. Yeah, yeah, sure. Because in like in some twisted way, like your, your legacy is then like you, you, you have more control over it in a way. Yeah. Like you put a, you put a period on it and like, you don't have to deal with like following up this well-known work that you did with like decades and decades of whatever. And I don't know, like it's, I am certainly not like, (laughs) do, do not like, misunderstanding i am not like endorsing artistic like suicide for the sake of art but no no impossible it's impossible to argue that it doesn't like link itself inextricably with an artist's work when they do commit suicide and it certainly leads to the romanticizing of it yeah um, yeah, yeah of suicide which is like you don't want to be doing that, and yet it's linked to these great works of art, and then it, you can't undo that. And yeah. Also, I just want to note: Did you say that the book was published under a pseudonym, Victoria Lucas? Uh, I didn't. I didn't say it, but it was published. Yeah, what? Victoria Lucas. Victoria Lucas. Um, mm-hmm. And it's Do also you know why? No, I don't know why. Actually. Okay. Hmm. While you look up why, I'm going to also mention that the book is a Romana Clef, which is the word we use for books that like are fiction laid over nonfiction. Um, you know, I think it means like book with a key because French people are weird. Um, the other Romana Clef that we've read, some of which are All Quiet on the Western Front, All the King's Men, you could consider uh, Capote's writing, Romana Clef. To the Lighthouse, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, even in some ways. 
Uh, and some people would argue that Animal Farm is one, but I don't. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Okay, I got it. Okay, you got, got it. it. Go ahead. Um, uh, she published it first to uh, protect people that she fictionalized. So she was because oh, it is yeah. so autobiographical. Mm-hmm. She was mm-hmm. worried about her mom. And people in and that then, in um, the magazine group were reportedly not particularly happy about right right yeah and she she was worried about uh libel suits yep and then she also apparently wanted to keep her reputation as a serious writer because she'd already written the colossus at this point oh from um the you know this quote unquote pot boiler work that she had created oh that's Um, what it is yeah, well, huh. like, that's this is the thing that I am reading says pot boiler okay. in quotes, which makes me think it comes from her. Okay, sure. Okay, um, and she didn't she didn't want the book to be judged as a book as a novel by a poet. Oh, sure. Okay. Like I don't I don't know that prose and poetry are quite like water and oil, but typically you are known for one or the other. I think. Yes, that's certain. Well, and it's certainly like it either. Uh, puts up people's defenses or like makes people cut you certain types of slack either way. All right. Sure. Uh, we should take a quick break and then we'll come back with the book, Andrew. Okay. Hey, Andrew. Hi, Craig. What do you know about gadgets? Actually, no, I shouldn't ask you that. Actually, you know no, that's much. bad because I know like a lot because it's my job to know about gadgets. But what if you need to buy a gadget and it wasn't literally your job to know all about all the gadgets? It might be useful to have a YouTube channel where you could go get some reviews and like hands-on uh, tutorials of some gadgets. So uh, this week's show is brought to you in part by Buyer's Recourse, which is a channel made for you, the listener, or Andrew, I guess, if you wanted um, our goal, uh, this is Buyer's Recourse speaking, our goal is to highlight and review products and gadgets that we firmly believe will add to your day-to-day life and to help you learn to use them effectively. Uh, we strive to purchase these review products ourselves so as to give a fully unbiased review and experience them in the same way that you, the viewers, would. If you would like to support the show uh, by helping us purchase these products, we will. Uh, they're going to start up a Patreon page. There you go. Uh, and you can follow them on Twitter at buyers, at buyers underscore recourse. And that's buyers, B-U-Y-E-R-S, recourse, R-E-C-O-U-R-S-E. I got lost in the middle of that one. Sorry. It's a play on buyer's remorse. Yeah, it is. Because they're trying to give you a a recourse to feeling remorse. I think that's pretty funny. So get that. Go check out buyer's recourse if you need a recourse for your gadgets. So let's talk about this book, see? Yeah, man. I talked about Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes. You were ready to go. I'm impressed. I will say I this. I took a lot, lot, lot of notes. Like, a lot Can of you... notes. It's not that I normally don't prepare for the show, but well, I took a lot of notes. Do you want to talk about why? You, I think you, you, like, wanted to make sure that we did Oh, I guess, yeah. I had, I had, I wasn't complaining. Let's not call it complaining. No, no, but no. in the past, when sometimes when we have done a book because because our perspective on the show is like weird goofy idiot lay people that's that not just us. a perspective that's also a fact no that's like literally <laughs> our whole thing in life in books as in life we are idiot bystanders yep and so sometimes we come to an author like a like a jane austen or to the bronte sisters or to whoever 
who already have like a very firmly established fan base and a huge body of like scholarship. Yeah, sure. And like lots and lots of people who have thought about this stuff for lots longer than we have who take it like very seriously and who like these works really resonate with them and that's like part of their life. Yeah. And so sometimes I feel like I worry that when we cover these kinds of authors, if we come insufficiently prepared and misrepresent anything, then we've done a bad job. I'm worried that we're doing those authors and also their fans a disservice. So I don't know. We nailed everything on Plath, but like I was trying. So no, and I (laughs) certainly appreciate it because I feel like you're going to, because this book is vaguely autobiographical and more than just vaguely as we just Mm -hmm. were talking about like possible libel suits like the work that you did is going to give you a good grounding in this novel and i think maybe save us some time um yeah and it's not hit me very long so the book can hit hit me with it and i I, what's the bell jar what's the why is it named what it's named okay so the bell jar is a metaphor start with that one yeah we don't often talk about titles we're bad about that um the bell jar is (laughs) whatever a metaphor (laughs) not that important they're just words you put on the front (laughs) it's like the book has so many more words in it than the ones that are on the front like why would you (laughs) If only, Why would you talk that much about a title? If only bookstores were organized by uh, t- book title, then everyone would just begin their ti- their title with the letter A. A bell jar. Oh yeah, we're yeah. If we ever get around to writing that choose your own adventure book, we're just going to call it Ah. <laughs> Welcome to my very special bookstore, where books are organized <laughs> not by the Dewey Decimal System. Um, <laughs> so the bell jar is a metaphor that our main character Esther Greenwood, and I think. Plath in her own writing uses to describe uh it's it's the world closing in around you and you're in like a sterile suffocating environment where you feel cut off from the rest of the world um yet you can see it out there and and not participate in it um the bell jar in particular it's like a it's like a chemistry thing right Mm -hmm. um where you can like cut off something and watch a controlled experiment in my my head i'm thinking about like watching gas move around in like chemistry class sure you create a vacuum in a bell jar um so she is talking it's not just depression um and it's not just the mental illness that she's dealing with i think in this book the bell jar is also what esther uh, believes to be some of the causes of her depression. So she is a 19-year-old woman, uh, successful kind of middle-class student um, who is who's done very well for herself. She wins scholarships. She wins, like, writing awards, all that. She gets straight A's. Um, and she is, we, we meet her in this first section, living in New York on a month-long magazine scholarship. Right, we've heard this before. Right. So, yes. uh, the book is really s- split up into three sections, even though it's just individual chapters. So we have the first section in New York, we have the middle section where she goes back home, and then we have the third section, which most closely models after Platt's time in McLean Hospital. Um, so like New York, back home at the Burbs, and the asylum. Those are my <laughs> those are my notes. Okay, good notes. <laughs> um, 
and she's kind of in New York. It's tough because she's kind of f- torn between fitting in with the girl. So it's like uh, there's a dozen young women who all submitted to this magazine contest to be quote unquote guest editors, which mostly means that they are like helping their bosses read article pitches and whatever, and then being like taken to parties where they have to show up and then at the end there's going to be like a big article on like these girls came from all over the country look how smart they are and right yeah like, it's a it's a kind of position that you're really rolling the dice like it can be whatever the magazine wants it to be and they don't have to give you any money mm-hmm. or any particular exposure any of you do get exposure like it might not mean anything so and they have you like they, yeah it's it's the mid 50s like 53 i think um, so it's the summer when the Rosenbergs were going to be executed, uh, okay. which is mentioned multiple times. Uh, Eisenhower has just become president, but the Rosenbergs in particular are mentioned and Esther has like, she's not psyched about it. And I think that ha- there's like a metaphorical link between that and the ECT later in the book. Um, okay. cause they were electrocuted. So uh, but the first part of the book's kind of funny. Um, so she's in New York, <laughs> and she's like a f- sort of a fish out of water. She's from suburban Boston, um, so it's not like a big city is completely foreign to her. But she is with like there's a girl from like Topeka, Kansas. Wait, what big city is there up around Boston? Get it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sucks to you, Boston. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> I'm just trolling the people who I personally know who yeah. live in or near Boston who sure. are very enthusiastic about Boston. You're just nuking your menchies ahead of time. Um, yes, yeah. <laughs> so she's torn between fitting in with like Betty and Hilda who are like on board with going to all the parties and whatever. Uh, and this woman named Doreen who like within the first chapter is like, yo, Esther, let's bounce. Let's not go to that party. Let's go hang out with this radio DJ named Lenny that I met. Um, and that you like get... 55% of all radio DJs are named <laughs> Lenny. And of course, when you go to his like suite slash recording studio, uh, he plays clips from his radio station. So like you hear his voice. <laughs> bo- so like the, this is why I said this part of the book is kind of funny. It feels like, uh, it rings true with a lot of American fiction from that time period where you have this like almost satirical, lampoony kind of version of a crappy almost sexual encounter where like she is supposed to be double dating with Doreen and Lenny and she doesn't like Lenny's friends so they just make him go away and then and and you also see like you see it in like Broad City and um, Search Party and a lot of other stuff just kind of lampooning the self-important hipster of oh, the day. Sure, sure. And I think in, in 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 Platt's time it would have been Lenny the radio DJ. Yeah. That's true. And and it's all kind of building up this world and setting the stage for this world that is post World War II, there is this sense of opportunity and conservatism at the same time. So and and particularly for women, for young women, where it's like go to college, be really successful, but make sure you learn shorthand so that you are not just an English major you're an english major who knows shorthand who will get hired and you're going to go to your job just long enough until you meet someone and then you're going to be a wife um and esther doesn't feel great about that uh she's not quite (laughs) story story checks out she's not quite sure that she wants to that she has the gumption to do otherwise but she is 
not sure that she can handle that. Um, so I did want to double check real quick, Andrew, when you moved to the big city, because okay. you were a country mouse for a little while. Oh, yeah. For the long time. And and so there isn't like a huge shock from Esther in terms of like living in New York City, though she does kind of balk at the trappings of this like fake life that she's living where she's living in like a women only hotel while she's there and like everybody in the subway smells and she has to like bum cars and stuff everywhere to get around. Like was there anything about moving to the big city for you that was like either amazing or disorienting? I'll tell you I'll tell you two things. I'll tell you that when we still live in Ohio and I lived in Ohio so my dad was in the Air Force, we moved around a lot. We moved, we lived in Ohio from when I was 10 to around um when I was 25 which is when Susanna and I moved to um, like central Jersey. And then up after two Jersey years City, of that, yeah, because yeah, she went to Rutgers. And then two years after that, we went up to Jersey City, which is close enough to New York. Like, yeah. don't let people from Brooklyn tell you otherwise. <laughs> um, so so living in Ohio, like I absolutely did, did not want to live in New York. I thought it was just be too much. Like I was kind of terrified of it, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um. And then we did the like the in between year where we lived in New Brunswick, which was bigger than anywhere in Ohio because Jersey is super densely populated. And also I was going into Philly and into New York like regularly for work and for fun stuff. Yeah, sure. Um, Like you do. Yeah. And then and then like by the time we moved up to Jersey City, like I was still nervous about it. And. I don't know, like I. Because we got like somebody tried to kick our door in like two months oh, after yeah. we moved into our Jersey City apartment. So oh, like it man. did take us some time to feel <laughs> oh, no. completely safe. Yeah, but okay. But like once once I got over that, I got really used to like I loved never have to having to drive anywhere. Sure, but not that I not that I hate driving. I do hate city driving. Um, I liked never having to drive anywhere. I liked that. There was just everything everywhere all the time. Sure. Mm-hmm. And then just like there were a lot of people and it was a lot of like different kinds of people who don't. Yeah. Who yeah. I didn't like see all the time in central Ohio. Like it, let's it, some would call that a bubble. I would call it not that. But <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's kind of what I, I just wanted to get to some of that because like Esther similarly like she enjoys that she can kind of walk. She likes walking. Um, she's like she can walk anywhere she takes cars and cabs and stuff but and she also comes across for better and for worse like a wide variety of people um, oh yeah I, yeah i i love walking it might be because i don't get cat called like i know that yeah, my experience true. as a white man is not going to be the same experience that everybody has but yeah it's it's really it's a just really different it's more different than you can ever imagine it being mm-hmm. from where you are just to have like these huge buildings and all these people around all the time. Um, but if you are, if you're like predisposed to that, like I know they're like, some people don't like to live in a city and that's totally fine. Um, but I really like it. I would have a hard time giving it up now that I'm used to yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. I feel similarly. Um, so yeah, I'm just kind of looking for touchstones for us at the beginning of this book here. Um, she's got a relationship ish back home. With a guy named Buddy Willard. Um, I'm going to make sure I get his last name right. Yeah, Buddy Willard. 
Buddy um, Willard. She was infatuated with him. Sounds like a cartoon cowboy. Yeah, Go ahead. School. He stinks. Like she's visiting him from college at one point, and he like makes out with her, and he goes, "Wow, it makes me feel terrific to kiss you." And she's like, "Get out of here, buddy. You stink." Same. He's Same. a doctor <laughs> in training. At one point when she goes to visit him, they like look at all these deceased babies in jars and it like freaks her out and they see like a live birth and he assures her that the woman's not in pain because she's on like an epidural and she riffs about how like what a like male drug that is to like make a thing that a woman would forget how painful birth is so that she would just do it again, which is kind of... I mean, my my understanding of like all natural birth is that you do as with some as with many traumatic experiences you do sort of block it out yeah yeah Um, but still yeah no i totally take i I completely take your point i mean like i read it and it's like it's it's humor it's so true it 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 feels so true in the moment that it elicits a laugh and i kind of just wanted to make sure we identify that along the way in this part of the book oh, because yeah. her wit is on display th- throughout the throughout the book um mm. she wants to be with him but then she discovers that buddy is not and as she discovers that there are other men in the world well she discovers in particular that he is not uh pure and he has been with other women um she has not been with anyone and Maybe she was going to marry this guy, but this idea of him having been with someone else is not great. And she now is this like just like he has ever had sex with somebody else or. okay, okay, cool. Um, So then we get a series of uh, vignettes of her being with other dudes or bopping around the city. There's like an elaborate food poisoning sequence where all the girl, all the women in the program, like eat some bad crab meat and get real sick and like poop and puke and stuff and it's cool like, okay cool uh and there's like a note about like bonding over puking next to someone um i could, that is real that is a real bond very real uh <laughs> she ends up going on like a half date ish with this guy named constantine who is a un interpreter uh from russia i think set up like th- actually through buddy's mom which is sort of weird Mm-hmm. And this is a section where she goes with him to the UN because he's interpreting like he's a what is what you call a simultaneous interpreter. So like while someone's speaking, he's like speaking into a microphone to translate. Oh, okay. And she's watching this happen and she is like realizing how inadequate she feels as a human. Um like she's very successful for a 19-year-old. She got into this program that took her to New York. She's doing well in school. She's going to, you know, Uh, an equivalent of smith basically um but in this moment she's like hmm i can't cook i don't know how to do shorthand i'm not a good dancer a singer i have no balance i can't ride a horse or ski i can't speak multiple languages and she just i want to find this passage real quick about i I noticed that most of the stuff in that list is sort of like wife slash socialite stuff but it, but it gets out of that though because it gets into like I, it does like it does it does get into like knowing different languages and and that kind of thing. But I'm already seeing these and and you had said that maybe you wanted to talk about this. I'm already seeing signs of her being trapped by the role that a woman is supposed to have. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Um. 
And she says, the one thing I was good at was winning scholarships and prizes, and that era was coming to an end. I felt like a racehorse in a world without racetracks, or a champion college footballer suddenly confronted by Wall Street in a business suit. His days of glory shrunk to a little gold cup on his mantle, with a date engraved on it like the date on a tombstone. I saw my life branching out before me like the green fig tree in the story. And this is a story she told earlier where there's like fig trees... You know, somebody's picking figs from a tree. It's a wonderful metaphor that I don't remember. But she sees <laughs> she sees her life as she is sitting in the like in the middle of this tree and she is starving, but she can't choose which fig to like eat. And there's so like the choice is paralyzing. Like she could upend her life, go to Europe and like sleep with a bunch of dudes and live like a bohemian life. She could embrace the like rat race career life of New York. She could go just be a wife, you know, like she could be a teacher like her mom who teaches shorthand. I I think that also is real for, especially for people who are fortunate enough to go to college because you do start to sense for maybe the first time in your life, the, the sensation that doors are closing Uh where previously Mm -hmm. pretty much everything was open to you. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know that like, I think that's the first place where a lot of, people uh, people in our situation anyway yeah are, like start to experience that kind well, of thing she also goes on a riff about how she was in like the upper track of studies at her college which allowed her kind of freedom to skip some of the basic stuff and then she would hear about people like at her mom's community college like having to slog through all the basic stuff and being far better grounded than she feels even right. in her own studies so mm-hmm. like that's an interesting catch twenty two that that Plath articulates really well. Um, so then after she has this, uh, she ends up like not sleeping with Constantine, and then she ends up going on a date with this guy Marco with Doreen. Hello. I know um, with Doreen and uh, Lenny that we met before, and Marco she identifies Hello. very quickly as a woman hater. Um, oh, good. And this, he does attempt to uh, rape her. It does not succeed. Um, she says, uh, then it's, uh, she sees him and she goes, then it struck me. Uh, and then it struck and struck and struck at the invisible pain till I moved off. I had never met a woman hater before. I could tell Marco was a woman hater because in spite of all the models and TV starlets in the room that night, he paid attention to nobody but me. Not out of kindness or even curiosity, but because I'd happened to be dealt to him, like a playing card in a pack of identical cards. Uh, so it starts with him just kind of like bullying her through this date experience and then ultimately kind of making, nagging her. Yeah, and then ultimately making a pass at her that she, you know, fends him off. She ends up having to like punch him in the nose and gets away. Um, and that's the end of her time in New York, like also happening. So then she was kind of, she just flees that. She literally throws all of her clothes out of the window at her hotel um, and like trades her bathrobe for some clothes from one of the other women. Okay. (laughs) Um, And then she was supposed to get into this program at Yale and she didn't. So she ends up stuck back in the burbs with her mom. And then this is when the kind of next level the little beats that you've that you've seen earlier in the book of her feeling like she doesn't know what to do become all encompassing 
Um, and that, just to note real quick, I think that the Yale thing mirrors something that happened to her yes. after the Mademoiselle uh, guest editorships that she got, but it was Harvard and not Yale. Sure. Sure. So I can see why she would be worried about people knowing what she was talking oh, about. Oh, it's all the same. Um, <laughs> so she goes she goes back with her mom. Her uh, the Esther's father also died when she was very young. Her mom is teaching shorthand, etc. Uh, she has a friend that she could go and stay with if she like was willing to pay for classes instead of this program. But she's like too paralyzed by the shame of it to not do that. Um, she decides I'm going to write a novel and. Then she realizes, I have no life experience, so I'm going to get a job. I hate jobs. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to write my thesis that I need to do for school on Finnegan's Wake. This book is a lot, and I don't want to do it. Um, and this is all kind of spinning as she, she's slowly kind of paralyzing herself with this depression. So she ends up going. Uh, she gets recommended to a psychiatrist after she asks for additional sleeping pills. And then there's just this kind of descent, I would say, is the best, like the shoe drops in a way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, this very rational mind that you've been dealing with and listening to, it's not like the book changes how it's written even, but all of a sudden she just says, uh, I hadn't, uh, I hadn't washed my clothes in three weeks. I hadn't washed my hair for three weeks either. I hadn't slept for seven nights. Um, she says, the reason I hadn't washed my clothes or my hair was because it seemed silly. I saw the days of the year stretching ahead like a series of bright white boxes and separating one box from another was sleep, like a black shade. Only for me, the long perspective of shades that set off one box from the next had suddenly snapped up. And I could see day after day after day glaring ahead of me like a white, broad, infinitely desolate avenue. It seemed silly to wash one day when I would only have to wash again the next. It made me just tired to think of it. I wanted to do everything once and for all and be through with it. So, like, this woman who's kind of been, you know, doing her thing in New York is kind of trucking along, ends up back at home, and then, like, chapter break, this passage... Um, and from there on out, like the struggle is far more explicit, right? Um, so because yeah. I don't, I don't want the show to run too far past sure, time. Sure. But from this point, what what mirrors Plath's okay, great. life as we have talked about it, and where does where do things diverge? That's a great way to put it. So she does start seeing a psychiatrist at home. She does, and I don't know. If, I don't think this happened to Plath, as far as I read. Um, the psychiatrist that she sees first, Dr. Gordon, who sucks, he's a sucky dude, um, he prescribes her ECT and it goes bad. Like, she's awake during it. It is terrible and it knocks her out for days. Um, and she is now actively, like, thinking about suicide. She's carrying around, like, razors in her purse. Um, there is a vignette of uh, her, like, cutting her leg, which I think you mentioned earlier. Yeah, right. Um, and then this does lead to her taking Esther uh, a bunch of sleeping pills and like hiding herself in her mom's basement. Um, except I think what happens in the book is that she goes missing for like a week and her mom like hears her while doing laundry like a week later. Sure. And like finds her. Um, that 
yeah, that's I had to read that a couple times because it was like it is disor. It is interesting how Plath can like artfully not tell you something because mm-hmm. it's the experience of the character, and you kind of have to figure out exactly what might have just happened um, because yeah. Esther doesn't have access to that information. Mm-hmm. So then, after she goes to one or two places, following that. Um, her like patron, which we haven't really mentioned, she does have a like rich uh, artist patron that set her up on college scholarship, and this was a thing that Plath had also. Um, and this patron's name is in the book. I want to make sure I get it right. Philomena Guinea. Um, okay, she's a wealthy elderly lady who wrote like you know popular fiction. Um, she ends up paying for. Uh, Esther to go to this nicer hospital. I don't know if that's the same thing that happened with Plath, but that's, I think that might be. I don't, I don't like know. It, it. I, as far as I could tell, she was in the same hospital the whole time, but she may have changed doctors. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I know that she, um, after this, after this episode, she started, she went to some creative writing courses oh, or sure. some, um, some just like meetings, I guess, of mm-hmm. people and the people in that meeting. I have names here. Okay. Uh, yeah, she went to uh, in 1958. This was like four, three or four years after her first attempt at suicide. She goes to some writing seminars uh, given by Robert Lowell. Oh and yeah. And then mm-hmm. he and this he and um Anne Sexton are two people she met at McLean, through yeah. this that. Um, encouraged her in her writing to like draw from her own experiences and write from a more like female perspective, which she had, she, she had some difficulty with. Sure. But like, that's where this book comes from is just like people advising her. Yeah. Right. Lean into it. Like, like you have told us about all this stuff you've struggled with write about it. And it's, it's going, it's going to feel very real and very, immediate and 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 that sounds like the the experience that you're having. yeah the the shift that really comes for her when the primary doctor that she is put in the care of is a woman um as opposed to the male dr gordon who did such a bad job um dr nolan is is much better for her uh prescribes ect that is more successful and that is the only time in the book where she describes the bell jar like lifting um is after some of that ect Mm-hmm. Uh, and this, I imagine, is like an amalgam of Platt's kind of feelings and experiences, but not as like direct. Like she sees other women in this uh, home that are like possible ways that she could go if she doesn't get better. Um, a woman with a lobotomy, a woman who doesn't speak, an old friend of hers who also dated Buddy Willard. Um and then, Buddy like, Willard gets around, honey. Yeah, and then he, why is but why is Buddy Willard getting so much tail? Like, who's <sighs> Buddy Willard? Yeah, he she gets like hooked up. I didn't mention the fact that she like tried to explicate herself from him, but then he gets like TB. And Extricate. She, yeah, that's what I meant. Extricate. Extr- yeah, sure. And <laughs> uh, he has like TB, and she has to go visit him in the TB hospital, and like he tries to marry her. It's all awkward and terrible. Um, he sucks. He shows up again at the end, and he still sucks. Uh, <laughs> and then she does. The book ends with her going into a board meeting, like a meeting with the doctors of this facility to decide if she gets to leave. Like there's an ebb and flow of privileges depending on how she's doing while she's in, but this could be like her getting to go back to school. 
and there's this passage right towards the end, and you don't know what happens in that meeting. Like the book ends right before that meeting, which is kind of cool. Um, but there's this passage right before that with her mother that I just want to read because, um, like I've had, I have relatives who've dealt with severe depression, um, mm-hmm. and episodes like this, and this is something that rang very. Hmm, not necessarily even true for my experience, but like I will not forget this passage uh, as I move forward with some of this stuff where uh, this is Esther speaking. A daughter in an asylum, I had done that to her. Still, she had obviously decided to forgive me. We'll take up where we left off, Esther said. Uh, Esther, her mother had said with her sweet martyr smile, we'll act as if this all were a bad dream. Esther talking again, a bad dream. To the person in the bell jar, blank and stopped as a dead baby, the world itself is the bad dream. A bad dream. I remembered everything. Uh, I remembered the cadavers and Doreen and the story of the fig tree, etc., etc. Maybe forgetfulness, like a kind snow, should numb and cover them, but they were part of me. They were my landscape. So, uh, to me, that's like, that is a really wonderful summation of the struggle between like relative slash caregiver and someone who is struggling with this type of depression where it's like whether or not you like whether or not you identify these struggles as part of yourself and how you accept them and the folks who are trying to help you and support you whether or not they're emotionally ready to do the same Mm -hmm. um earlier the mom says like oh what does she say uh i knew I knew you decided to be all right again, which is just like, mom, that's no, not that that definitely, definitely gets to some stuff about depression that makes it sound like you something you can just like snap out of, which is not the case, not the case at all. And um, something that people who'd suffer from it continue to fight against. Yeah. To this day. Certainly. So cool. Um, and then the other like overarching theme, which it doesn't, I don't know. I'd have to read more of like, letters or journals of plath to know how much of this overlapped with overlaps with esther but the threat of motherhood like looms large like there's a early passage where she remembers a like a, an article her mom had read to her about like well there you're there's no 100% way to not have a baby and it's probably just going to happen to you, so you better get ready for it. And men see the world differently, and you need to be prepared for it because you're going to have their baby. You're trapped. Uh, so she like goes through the book with this fear and like knowing that it's going to happen anyway, and that motivates a lot of the like tension between her and the male characters in the book. And yeah, that's it. That's interesting because she had like just had a baby. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, well, and this was, you know, drawn on the period of time leading up to that too. So who knows? Um, Wait, when was it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. Never mind. Yeah, I was uh, right. As always. <laughs> oh, as always. Uh, but she does like Esther at one point does like get a a diaphragm so that she can try to prevent actually having kids, and, and it's empowering to her. Um. So yeah, it's a. It, I am very happy I read it. It is a very good book. Um, this is not your one-stop well, shop for book good, reviews, but yeah, but and it's just a good. It's a good author to have done for the show because I, there's just a lot here to to talk about and unpack. 
Yeah, I will say my own ignorance. I thought this book was 30 years older than it was. Like in my head, it was closer to Wolf in terms of timing. Um, Virginia Wolf, that is, and that's not true. So I was pleasantly surprised in a way to to find it in the time period when it was because I think that is unique to the struggles that you like the types of traps that she feel that she finds herself in or or the as we were saying before that kind of particular liminal zone between being successful and being hemmed in by society um yeah and like you get into some proto-feminism stuff you get into like modern attitudes toward and treatments for depression Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. there's an acknowledgement that it's a thing but like it's not very well understood and like people don't get it and the extent to which that is still the same now kind of sucks yeah um i would say there's a really good oh so in the forward if you do get the edition that i that i mentioned earlier the forward is good you should read it i don't always read these um, and it's not too long, but she does say that the the novel was pre-drugs, pre-pill, pre-women's studies. And in the survivalist mode of the 90s, suicide may seem like a loser's option, but the adolescent suicide rate has quadrupled since World War II. Um, and depression has become like almost epidemic in America in the meantime. So there's like, at the time, I think, you know, it's tapping into a thing that's still it's it's tempting to look back at books written in this time period as we do sometimes and be like is that still hmm um this book feels very fresh as and part of that i think is because she wrote it like a year or two after it happened to her it yeah, was not right. it was it was not like written with 30 years of maturity or perspective on top of it Mm-hmm. Um, it feels very immediate, which I yeah, think right. actually helps it a lot. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's uh, that's the bell jar. I didn't expect the puking part. That was kind of fun. <laughs> that's your closing thought. Well, I just like I wanted to remind I everybody that I like didn't think there'd be food poisoning. It was very easy for me to find a Guardian article about is it okay to find the bell jar funny? Like, I just want people to know that. This is a pretty clever, witty voice that if it like gives you some kind of chuckles at times, it's in particular in the first half of the book. Like, I think like is it obvious that she's trying to be funny? She is she is cleverly depicting people that she is like subtly uh, jabbing at. Okay, because I I think if if, if there's some obvious effort to be funny involved, then it's fine to find it funny. I think if you're laughing at people being depressed then what is what are you doing what is wrong with you no it's in the turns of phrase it's in the um what is the just like yeah like she's she's still an author writing a book yeah and she's still gonna choose the tilt to tell the story in whatever way she wants to so yeah I, i don't think it's a problem that you'd think it's funny at one point she says then i decided i would spend the summer writing a novel that would fix a lot of people like that's (laughs) (laughs) like that's just a funny thing to say yeah, I think that all the time. That'll fix them. That'll, that'll show them. <laughs> show them. That'll learn them. I'll make a podcast about books. That'll teach them. Yeah, they'll all they'll all be sorry. <laughs> if you're sorry about this podcast, you should let us know. <laughs> you should find us on social media at twitter.com slash overduepod or facebook.com slash overduepod uh, where you can send us notes or 
over email at overduepod at gmail.com. I want to thank uh, Dion, Chris, Michael, Christina, Catherine, Ellie, Leslie, Antonia, Ariel, Lindsay, Amy, Chelsea, Catherine, Gloria, Glenn, Mr. J, Liz, Rebecca, Tracy, Stacy, It's Nicolepsy, Mrs. WT, Wendy, Becky, Patrick, Dave, Starfish Chick, Carrie, Celeste, Monica, Emma, Melissa, Graham, Pumper, Nicholson, Liz, Taylor, Sophie, and Steam Cavalier for reaching out to us over the last week or so. Andrew... If folks still need to know more about the show, where should they go? Overduepodcast.com is your one-stop shop for all overdue links and and trinks. That's short for trinkets. <laughs> we don't really sell any trinkets. Um, if you go there, you find links to Am- the Amazon Amazon links, some Amazon links to the books that we have read and are going to read. Uh, we just posted, like today, as we post this episode, we're going to post our list of books for April, which I'm sure Craig can read in a second after I get done with my spiel here. Um, we have links to iTunes, RSS, Google Play, and Stitcher. Those are all the services you can use to subscribe to the show. If you subscribe in iTunes, do rate and review us. People keep doing that, and it keeps being cool, so keep it up. Um, we've got links to HeadGum, our podcast network, Spreaker, our podcast host. We've got a link to our Patreon project, which is a way to support us with your hard-earned money. Because obviously we deserve it. Craig, do you know who uh, recommended this book to us? This was not a Patreon recommendation. Oh, actually. wasn't it? It was right. recommended by a bunch of people over the last like three years. Okay, cool. Um, so including you're welcome, yeah, people. Including I think most recently uh, Lizzie, but that's it's not a Patreon recommendation. I but yeah, if if you want to bump a book up in our queue, um, t- giving us a little bit of money via Patreon is a good way to do it. Um, is there anything else aside from, do you have the list of books we're going to read? This I do month? have the list of books that we're going to read this month that include two Patreon books. Uh, the Count of Monte Cristo, uh, will be next week. Uh, that's by Alexander Dumas. Then we're following it up with Silas Marner by George Eliot and Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro, which is another Patreon recommendation. Cool. And, um, do we want to, do we want to commit to the... The bonus episode that we talked about for April? Oh, I don't know. We'd been on a different... We're doing this live on air. We'd been doing a different bonus schedule. So you're trying to add an episode right now. Well, what? no, we had talked about just fitting it in because people seemed really into it. Oh, that book. Yeah, that one. You want to do that one? Well, now we have to because you talked about <laughs> it. At some point this month, uh, Craig and I are going to read Skateboard Tough by Matt Christopher. <laughs> Because we talked about it in our episode uh, with Margaret H. Wilson a few weeks back, and our interest and reader interest are both just off the charts. So we're gonna we're gonna find out who is skateboard tough. What is, is he skateboard a skateboard tough? tough? Why I don't know. skateboard tough? Mm-hmm. How do mm-hmm. you skateboard tough? These questions and more will be answered. I can't believe we're reading later this month. Tough. Skateboard tough. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for supporting us with your money and with your tweets and with your reviews and your Facebook likes and just every bit of attention that you pay to this dumb thing that we make every week. Um, We will see you next Monday. And until then, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.